Father in heaven, I pray that your spirit will be here with us today, that you will, that you will give us wisdom for our time, that we will understand our duty in our day, that your spirit will be close to us, that our hearts will not be troubled, but we will know that we believe in God and in you, Jesus. Be with us now as we reflect on one of the issues we face in our day. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in our Faith, Hope, and Love series. We've been doing that all fall, and it keys around one particular passage, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So we began talking about it. We had a couple weeks building up, and then, then we spent three Sabbaths talking about faith. And on each of those Sabbaths, we, we talked about a different aspect. The first one we said, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's the core faith confession. That's the confession that makes you a Christian. But that confession brings up a question, Son of God, who is God? Well, that's the second faith confession, and that is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we talked about another passage that said, without faith, it is impossible to please God because we must believe He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So the point of it all was it all begins with faith. Then two weeks ago, we began to reflect on the subject of hope. As we considered hope, we talked about the forgiveness of sin that is ours through the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, leads to forgiveness of sins, which brings hope. So it begins with faith, and faith grows into hope. Last Sabbath, Pastor Steve spoke to us about the hope of the resurrection, the passage that says, if for this life only we have hope in Jesus, we are to be most pitied. But Jesus is raised the first fruits, and we likewise after him. So in Jesus, this faith in Jesus also brings with it the hope of the resurrection. Today we continue our journey of hope, though for today I'm afraid we'll be taking a bit more of a convoluted path to this topic than I'd intended. But by God's grace, we will arrive at hope at the end. But hope is not really where we're going to begin today. Rather, we begin today at what I consider to be a point of significant disappointment. Originally, when I chose the topic for this Sabbath, it was with the truth in mind that today is just two days removed from the 174th anniversary of an event in the history of the Second Advent Movement known as the Great Disappointment. Little did I realize at the time that the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the most significant denomination to emerge from the Millerite Second Advent Movement, would be this Sabbath less than one week out from another event that I certainly found to be very disappointing. Now, I don't want to be too dramatic here. I'm not comparing the disappointment I feel related to a recent decision made by the Executive Committee of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists to the disappointment felt by so many who would become the founders of our church, who on October 22, 1844, had their great hope and expectation blasted when the day ended and Jesus did not appear in the clouds. I want to talk with you today about 
a third great statement of the faith that we must receive by faith, a promise made by Jesus that takes its place next to the other two faith statements. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This third statement adds the final element that makes those two statements eternally relevant. More on that at the end, and that is where we will go and where we will end today. But as I mentioned, our trek to that point will necessarily be some tough sledding at times, I fear. And, and I'm thankful for all of you that are joining us today related to our baby dedication. And maybe you don't have a lot of background in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and you, so you might not have all the context in what I'm about to talk about today. But we are a people that address issues, and we address them head-on when we need to. And I hope that in the process of that, you will understand our hearts here. Understand it is, it is not normally my practice to make Sabbath morning an issues hour, yet there are occasions when the times in which the churches exist demand at least some acknowledgement and some comment. Often the events that drive commentary come from the outside of the church. Other times the events occur on the inside. And so it is, I find myself disappointed this Sabbath, October 20, 2018, not in that anything has occurred that shakes my confidence in the promise that Jesus will return, but disappointed that we, as a world church, have made what I consider to be a very serious blunder that in the end will cost us many tithe dollars, a great deal of energy that could have been used on mission, a large quantity of time far better spent on other pursuits, and more than a few good men and women from both sides of this issue. I'm speaking about a document that was adopted by the General Conference Executive Committee after a great deal of discussion that seems to have had no impact on changing anyone's mind. Anytime you have a long discussion with lots of people making speeches, and when it's over, nobody changed their mind, you can be pretty sure you've reached an impasse. It's a document that it seems to me sets us on a collision course for a showdown that I'm not sure anyone can win. In short, the document adopted, officially entitled, Regard for and Practice of General Conference Sessions and General Conference Executive Committee Actions, has been described by its supporters as a means by which entities within the Seventh-day Adventist Church can be held accountable for sustained noncompliance with various issues of policy essential for united function and practice. And for the record, let me state that I agree there has to be some accountability within the organization in order for an organization to continue to exist. However, let me also state I do not believe this greater purpose is what this newly voted document achieves. Rather, it seems to me adoption of this document has done more in one day to begin unraveling the very carefully woven fabric of the Seventh-day Adventist Church than anything else that has occurred in my lifetime. And in addition to that, has launched us down a road that in the end threatens to undo multiple key tenets of Protestantism. I will address what I consider the practical problem with this document first. The document was proposed as a basis to bring accountability to entities considered to be non-compliant. And certainly there needs to be a means by which important non-compliance can be addressed. 
The problem is there already is a means, a policy, by which noncompliance can be addressed. A policy bearing the name Working Policy B95. It is a complete policy that gives various divisions and division committees the responsibility to consider any noncompliance within the division, determine the danger the noncompliance poses, and based on this investigation and determination, recommend or not recommend further action be taken by the General Conference Executive Committee. If no recommendation for action is made, no further action is taken. From what I've been able to determine, working policy B95 is a good policy in that it provides for accountability but also recognizes that ours is a world church with people from scores of diverse cultural sensibilities and inclinations. And B95 puts the determination as to whether or not a so-called non-compliance needs an aggressive response into the hands of the people of the region in which the issue has occurred. In other words, the hazard level of a suspected non-compliance will be determined by a jury of peers, not a jury of people who have limited understanding of the real situation on the ground in the place where the issue has arisen. But this safeguard is the exact reason working policy B95 has been completely ignored and the drive begun to come up with a workaround. And that really is perhaps the greatest irony of all of this. It is the General Conference's own policy that the General Conference is seeking to subvert. You see, working policy B95 could not be employed because none of the divisions where the so-called non-compliances have occurred are even remotely inclined to subject their unions to the tyranny of a majority vote taken by a world constituency that does not understand the local situations that led those unions and their constituencies to take the positions they took in the first place. The whole reason we set up unions and later divisions within the church was to stave off this very situation where we find ourselves today. That people a long way away who could not fully understand and appreciate the local situation somewhere else would not be able to dictate what could or could not happen in a part of the world that they don't understand. Now obviously, there has to be some sort of boundaries upon all of this, for there inevitably will be some forms of non-compliance that just cannot go unaddressed. But the entire assumption of the accountability system defined by working policy B95 is centered in the concept that we will trust the various divisions to be able to tell the difference between a potentially worldwide church endangering non-compliance versus one that everyone in the world might not like, but that in truth will have little to no impact outside the unions where the so-called non-compliance has taken place. What has been broken by the vote this past Sunday is that trust. And that's not going to be easy to fix. Now, I have spoken in general terms to this point because the document voted was written as if to address noncompliance in a general way. But the real core of the issue that drove the authoring of a document designed to allow a workaround to working policy B95 is the two unions in the North American division that continue to act to ordain women equally with men to pastoral ministry within their territory 
in accordance with the voted will of their local union constituencies. And the reality that makes this issue intractable is that the constituencies of these unions don't just view this as a practical matter, they view it as a moral imperative. And to bring this out of the hypothetical out there and bring it back to the literal in here, you know that I am not impartial in this debate. As I have confessed to you before, I am not by nature a crusader for causes of a social justice nature within the church. I'm somewhat conservative by nature and not really an early adopter of any reforms. Just ask my wife. She's been trying to reform me for years, the poor woman. But I will also tell you, I despise hypocrisy. And on the issue of women in ministry, anything but a full embracing of the capacity of women as equal to men in the role would be for me total hypocrisy. You see, I don't have the privilege of addressing this issue from a hypothetical standpoint where I could prevaricate for years about what certain sayings of Paul may or may not have meant. No, no such privilege is mine because, you see, I am a witness of the reality that God can and has blessed women with every bit as much a ministry calling and gifting as men. And I hope I'm not being too forward with you when I say you all are without excuse on this point as well, as it would be impossible for any of you to credibly say there has been a more faithful pastor, male or female, in the history of the Flores Lake Church than our own Pastor Barbara McCoy. And if you will be fair for a moment, I think you will have to concede there is no way that I or Pastor Mark or Pastor Steve or even Pastor Tim deserve the institutional recognition of ordination more than Pastor Barbara does. And in light of this, speaking for myself first, but I think for most all of you as well, this cannot just be a hypothetical debate for us. One day on this platform, we will ordain Pastor Juan. Will we forget that he got his start in the ministry of Pastor Barbara? One day on this platform, we will ordain Pastor Justin. Will we forget that he will have served much less time than Pastor Patty and that he has less qualification by education for the role than Pastor Barbara? This can't be hypothetical for us. It really is a moral issue, and it is an issue of conscience. In truth, I believe we have let this go on too long already, and I call upon our Southern Union leaders not to retreat until this storm is over, but instead to take a stand with their sister unions in this division during this time. And I'm saying this to you. Elder Roger Hernandez, our union ministerial leader, brother, I know you want this. And to you, Dr. Ron Smith, our president of the Southern Union, the very first one to rise at the GC session to speak against this document, I say to you, brother Ron, it's time. Can you please act? And can you do so before late next summer? 
so that we can ordain Pastor Barbara McCoy on this platform before she retires. Get this done, brethren. But now let me get back to the issue of the document voted less than a week ago. This document is not a unity document. It is by default a declaration of war, a declaration that the current leadership of the General Conference is willing to violate even its own established policy in order to coerce the conscience and the will of a duly elected union constituency of this church. What the General Conference has failed to win by being able to prove a clear scriptural mandate, they will now seek to achieve by force. And while I know there are those who hold the conviction that Scripture does indeed truly demand no women receive the recognition of ordination, I have to tell you honestly, I find such readings of Scripture to be utterly defeated by one simple reality, the life and ministry of Ellen White. To seek to claim that women cannot have authority over men and should not teach men and then seek to claim the authority of a woman to prove the point, well, I can't think of anything much more absurd than that. For the record, the only final conclusion the multi-year study of the Theology of Ordination Committee was able to reach was that the Bible neither requires nor denies the ordination of women. So, if the committee is right, do you know what that means? It means that whether you ordain women as pastors or not needs to be a local decision based on culture and mission effectiveness, period. And it means that what one part of the world decides on this issue is neither the business nor the problem of any other part of the world, period. And it means that already existing working policy B95, rather than being too weak, is in fact perfectly suited to deal with this issue, period. And sadly, it also means the document voted last Sunday will only serve to continue and worsen the damage already done by a runaway church bureaucracy that has mistaken tyrannical uniformity for mission unity, period. We are in desperate need for some wise men at the general conference level to arise and walk this situation back or else all this will lead to a testing of power where more likely than not we the church will be calling upon the legal authority of the state to intervene as we take each other to the courts of this land and what a dark day that will be so what do we do well, the first thing I would remind you is that even if everything gets scraped away, remember, our faith is not grounded in any particular leaders or even in any particular denominational organization. Our faith is grounded in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And while I pray that God will indeed make good His promise to Ellen White that the Adventist church will survive until the coming of Jesus, or at least that is what I understand His promise to her to be, though my heart will always be with the Adventist church through which I have known so many blessings, schools, hospitals, local churches, teachings in righteousness, world mission, Despite the fact that I've been deeply blessed by Adventism, fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist, third-generation Adventist pastor, despite all that, my deepest faith will not be in this institution that God has created and used, but rather my faith first will remain in God alone. Now, don't misread my intentions. 
I will continue to be the best soldier in this Adventist army that I can in good conscience be. And by God's grace, I will never leave this organization. If they want me out, they will have to come and throw me out. Which, ironically, this recently voted document makes that a little more possible than it was in the past. (laughs) But this is not a real worry. It's a hypothetical one. Yet it is a reminder that we have, with this vote, opened a door that could lead to behaviors totally antithetical to our Protestant roots. A door that could one day lead to high-minded inquisitions of our own devising, inquisitions that would drive us to the point of persecuting one another, all in the name of Jesus. And all of this could tend to leave us feeling a bit unsure and perhaps feeling somewhat orphaned in our own church organization. But we need not be afraid even of what harm we might do to ourselves. Why? Because we have this from Jesus. John 14, 18. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. The organizational church is where we come together to seek to follow God more effectively. Indeed, it is impossible for leaders, for believers, to not seek to organize and work together. But the church is not the end of the faith. Or rather, the doctrine of the church is not what lies deepest. It is faith in Jesus, the Christ, the Son of, Son of God. That's what gives life to it all. And while sometimes the humanity of the church can leave us feeling somewhat despairing, remember, our hope is not built upon some mythical notion of a perfectly functional institutional church. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is the first confession of the faith the one that makes us Christians. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And who is God? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And taken together, those two identity realities create a framework within which hope can live and rest. But they're not complete in and of themselves. They're not complete. There's something missing in them. Do you know what it is? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, has saved us from our sins. And God, yes, He is the Creator that has created this reality for us. But what about the mess that the world is in? And what about the mess we make of the church? Is there any hope it's going to get any better? Is your heart troubled today? If it is, then here is hope. Jesus said, John 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. We will be with Jesus someday.
and all the crime and injustice and lying and cheating and conflict and strife and misunderstandings and even death will end that day. It is the third truth we accept by faith, or at least we accept it by faith until it becomes reality. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If I go, I will come again. This is the core of the faith. This is the faith upon which we stand, the rock from which we cannot be shaken. This is our hope. And such a hope will never disappoint us, for the love of God is poured out upon all who have this hope. I know our lives are filled with disappointments and troubles, but let's not look to those just now. Just now, let's set our eyes on Jesus, our Savior and coming King. And let's rejoice in the work He has completed and the work He is about to do at His coming. We may have to walk down a few more perilous roads for another season or two, and some of those we have looked to may fail us along the way. But Jesus will never fail us. So let's be strong and very courageous. And let's stand upon the convictions of conscience in these days, honoring in the truest sense our Protestant heritage and always extending grace to the ones around us, the people that we love, trusting that God will bring us into a true and lasting unity in Jesus Christ. We have but one King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us put all our hope in Him and let us rejoice. Our Lord is King.